Good morning and welcome to the broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries, the Bill Vanderbush podcast, Reckless Grace podcast, all kind of rolled into one. This is our weekly podcast that gets put on radio stations all over the Midwest and shared all over the world. And so if you joined us today uh, and it's a Sunday morning, well, good morning to you. Uh, if you don't have a home church, I pray that you can find one somewhere close to you so you can actually gather together with other people and engage in conversation. You say, what's the point of going to church? That right there, conversation. The ability to ask questions, get answers, and offer some wisdom of your own. And you have something to offer, that's the thing. And when you withhold yourself from gathering with other people, you withhold what you're carrying from who they are. And you say, well, I just I just share with people online. You know, a lot of times those things have limitations. You don't get to see the face. You don't get to hear the the voice, the inflections, the tone, the the, the love in somebody's eyes as they're bringing it, perhaps maybe instruction, wisdom, or even correction into somebody else's life. There's got to be the ability to see in a face-to-face encounter the entire person. So there's something about the need for gathering that really is a big deal. Now, if you can't gather with other people and online's your only option, I totally understand that. I think think God can definitely move through whatever uh, avenue you give him to bring life into your world, to bring healing and wholeness to your body, to bring revelation, illumination, and wisdom to your mind and spirit. And so today I pray that this avenue of podcast, internet, or radio will find uh, find words of life being communicated from the Father's heart to you. And it's an honor to be a conduit for that whenever possible. Let's open this up in prayer today and, and just ask that the Lord would meet with us here during this time. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity once again to release a sound, your voice, your word, into this world in this way. God, I pray hearts would be open, minds would be receptive. God, would you cause us to see you more clearly? Jesus, I pray that you would be seen more clearly in this time, in this podcast, in this way. Thank you, Jesus, for making making the way to connect with the Father so much easier than we could have ever conceived in our own imagination. And thank you for the sacrifice that it took in order for that to come about. Thank you, Lord, for for the opportunity to read your word, to study your story, and to be a part of, of the next chapter as you continue to put your creative hands into our lives day by day. Guide our path this day. Guide us through divine appointments that have your fingerprints all over them. And Father, if there's any that are sick in body that are listening to this broadcast today, I pray as your goodness unfolds, Lord, that that goodness would show up in their bodies in healing Lord, do a miracle for people today who are suffering and have faced diagnosis that that seem to have no hope. Lord, would you grant us the gift of hope, a hope that goes beyond our ability to generate it in our own selves. Jesus, I thank you for everything. You're so worthy of all of our gratitude, all of our praise, and we love you. Amen. Well, in the past few, I guess, or weeks, even months, I've had a couple of podcasts that have delved into history a little bit. 
They're called How It Started and How It's Going. The first one was on Easter, and I renamed it How It Started and How It's Going Part 1, and then there was a Part 2, and if you go back and listen to those two, it'll make this one uh, make a whole lot more sense. It will set this one up a whole lot better. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you like history as much as I do, but uh, I was with a, a small group of people last night in Rochester, New York, and this lady came up and never never met in person before, but I've seen online, she jumps on her Tuesday night Bible studies, and she says, I just love the history portions. Oh, when somebody comes up to me and says, this is this is a passion for me. Well, and then shares uh, my own personal a desire to dive into it more. That just fuels me. So it may be just she and I that enjoy this, this part of, uh, of, of these talks, but I pray that you enjoy it as well. And I pray that you get something out of it and understand a little bit more about where we are, how we got here, and perhaps give you uh, a bit of a, a motive to, to look into the future with a sense of optimism and hope, uh, knowing that as Hebrews, uh, or excuse me, as Ephesians says, that in the ages to come, he will show us the surpassing riches of his grace. And that's ultimately his intention, isn't it? On this last few podcasts where we talked about history, we talked a lot about salvation and how Christ saves. And I spoke about in the first thousand years of Christianity that the target of the cross was sin, death, and hell. And last week, I believe it's last week's podcast, I talked specifically about sin. And that was in response to an occasional comment that I might hear from people even close to me saying, you know, you don't talk about sin a whole lot. I really don't like to give it a whole lot of airtime. And so I explained that last week. So we haven't really, though, dived headlong, even last week, haven't dived headlong into the topic of, of sin. So I just want to step back into the history line a little bit. We mentioned St. Anselm. We mentioned the theory that he came up with, with satisfaction, atonement. And I want, I want to just go back even further than that. Prior to St. Anselm, sin was a topic that was dealt with quite often. And the concept of original sin, I'm sure, is one that you've all heard of. We've all heard of this idea that uh, there is an original sin, which simply means the first sin ever committed. The problem to me with the term original sin is it subconsciously seems to communicate that sin is part of our origin. Now, I've no doubt that sin contributed to how we got into a place of confusion in relationship to the knowledge of God. But I, I would say that sin is nowhere near our origin origin story. Uh, I would attach the word original to righteousness, which I'm far more interested in. I think original righteousness is far more powerful than original sin. But original sin is a, a foundational concept in our culture of Western Christianity. And it was developed by St. Augustine or Augustine, however you feel like you want to say it. And uh, he was around the years uh, 354 to 430, so far before St. Anselm. And Augustine proposed that because Adam and Eve fell into sin, that every single person that is ever born is broken and born with a sin nature. Uh, we often get this from King David, who says in the Psalms, I was born in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. I don't think that has anything to do with original sin. I think that has to do with David's own story. And I mentioned this in podcasts in the past. I say, hi, what do you mean David's own story? We don't know who David's mother was. 
And uh, that's really unusual for a king for us not to know his family line, especially the one who gave birth to him. It also helps to explain why Jesse was reluctant to put him before uh, the prophet. Saying, are you saying David was an illegitimate son? Certainly seems to indicate that uh, his brothers had no regard for him at all, no respect for him at all. He was a, a, a kind of a, a stain on the family line. Why in the world does the youngest brother in a family line get put in the most dangerous job of tending sheep where there are lions and bears and nothing and nobody to help him. Even after the oil is poured over his head and he's pronounced next king of Israel, even then they send him alone back out into the field. Neither Jesse nor David's brothers have any love or care for him at all. As a matter of fact, the only interaction you ever see with David and his brothers when he goes out into the battlefield to face Goliath is his brothers make fun of him, uh, send him back to the job of tending those worthless sheep. And so you begin to see there's an attitude at at play here that seems to reveal something about David's origin story that he reveals in the Psalms where he says, I was born in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Unfortunately, we've taken that to mean that everybody is born into this sin nature. Augustine's idea of original sin, though, didn't just have this concept that we were born in iniquity and sin. What he taught was every single human is born not just with a sin nature, but already guilty of sin. The idea here was that every single one of us share in the guilt of Adam simply because we're alive. And he believed that only baptism could take away the stain of sin. And without it, he said, it was quoted as saying, even nice people go to hell. Now, there was a difficulty here because what do you do with infants? And so Augustine had to come up with some idea of what in the world to do with infants who died before baptism. If they're guilty of the sin of Adam even before birth, do they go to hell as well? And Augustine, he was he was courageous when it came to things that he had become convicted about and the convictions of his heart that he had settled on, put roots down in, said absolutely yes. He said that these children were condemned and excluded from heaven, although what he literally said, quote, was that they would experience the mildest condemnation of all. So let me push back on St. Augustine just for a little bit, or again, Augustine, however you want to say it. Uh, I don't share his view that we are born guilty of the sin of Adam and Eve. And this comes from my own study of the cross and just revelation of Jesus Christ and the witness of the Holy Spirit in my own heart. That's a conviction that I hold as tightly as perhaps Augustine held his. Uh, But I, I wondered where in the world he came to that view. Rather than simply disagree with somebody who doesn't necessarily align with with the way that you see it, it's kind of important for us to dive into understanding how a person comes to the knowledge that they come to because it may have some merit and and some wisdom for us. So so this is what I come to discover, that Augustine read his Bible in Latin, and he didn't read Greek well. He admitted that himself. He came to a verse that contained 
some ambiguous ideas in his view. Uh, The verse was in Romans chapter 5. If you've read Romans chapter 5, you probably know exactly where I'm going. In verse 12, the Greek original, Paul says uh, something to this effect. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all men sinned. Now, in short, it says sin came into the world through Adam. Sin produces death. So death is spread to everybody because everyone sins. But when Augustine read it in Latin, he read not because all men sin, but he read in whom, that is in Adam, all men sinned. And he read the passage as stating that all the members of the human race had sinned in Adam. So we universally participated in Adam's sin. It's Adamic universalism, actually. It's that every single one of us is a sinner because Adam did something. Now, this is actually what Western Christianity largely is built upon. The idea that because of Adam, we are all condemned. Happened before you were born. Nobody invited you to receive Adam's sin into your life so you could become a good sinner like Adam. Adam's sin, you could say it like this. It's a free gift beyond your works given to you apart from anything that you have done. It's kind of the anti-grace message when you stop and think about it. It was an impartation of Adam's actions before you were born without your permission, without your involvement, but you're affected because of what one man did. This idea was ingrained into Western Christianity. The New England Primer in 1690 literally said this, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. The Orthodox Church has a little bit more nuanced view of this. They don't call original sin original sin. They call it ancestral sin. But still, there's an ingrained belief that's held on for 1,600 years that we are born in innocence. The idea there is that we don't bear the guilt for our sins until we're somehow mature enough to take responsibility for the decisions that we make. Uh, And so at this point, you have the idea that, well, there's got to be some sort of an age of accountability, but what is that? Well, that becomes difficult itself to figure out. When pressed, church leaders have a really hard time assigning an expiration date for childhood innocence. Theologians for the past 2,000 years have historically argued on whether all of humanity inherits Adam's guilt. And and I would jump into the fray of that argument with both feet. Uh, I would say, though, that if we are going to press a hard line that we all inherit Adam's guilt, then we have to go with what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 5, that whatever we think Adam did to condemn us, Christ did more to redeem us. Beyond that, I would say that to elevate the power of Adam to condemn us above the power of Christ to redeem us would probably be one of the most gross errors that we could ever commit in elevating a creation above the power, grace, and love of its creator. So this is the way that I would put the fall of Adam based on Romans chapter 5. I would say that the brokenness of man's poor choices 
down through the lines of our ancestry gives us perhaps an inclination to sin. We are inclined often to make the wrong choice, mainly because I think we're just flat misinformed and we lack wisdom. And of course, the Bible speaks of this condition. It says, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him him ask of God who gives all men liberally and it shall be given. And if we fail to turn to the Lord, the result is that we are going to lack wisdom and especially wisdom when it comes to the choices that we make. So we have a tendency to pass sin down from one generation to the next just in practice. For the previous generation sets an example for us on how to be, how to do, how to live. It's interesting because even even secular psychologists will say that uh, you know often a person who grows up in a home it may hate the things that their parents do if their parents are you know, alcoholics or drug addicts or abusive or whatnot. They may hate what their parents do. But in, even in their fixation of passion of hatred against what their parents do, that fixation actually somehow gives us a, a lifelong study of a behavior pattern that when, that when pressed and stressed, we find ourselves slipping into the only example that we have seen in our lives being the very thing that we hate. So the children of people who do things that may not necessarily be good sometimes have a tendency to repeat those exact same actions. And this is one of the ways that sin gets passed down, just in in the behaviors that we copy from previous generations. We could take a look at the perfection of God's creation. Now we can begin to see imperfections all around us. We could say that Adam and Eve introduced something that broke God's creation to a certain extent. And we find ourselves living in a world that continues to carry on with the remnants of that brokenness. But where does the cross fit into this? How does Jesus' blood, cross, sacrifice, redeem us, ransom us, rescue us. The ransom theory of atonement, uh, you, you say, well, often I, I think of the, the cross as a ransom. It paid for us. It paid for our sins. Uh, you know, but here's, here's the idea. You can ransom somebody one of three ways. You can ransom them by paying off their captor. You make a payment to them. You can also ransom them by taking their place. You go into captivity so that they can go free. Uh, There's also another word for ransom, and it's rescue. And that is you can go in and kick the doors down, beat up the captives, and release the prisoners. Same concept, just different methodology. In that, there's no payment, there's no substitute. It's a rescue mission. When I look at the cross, I see a rescue mission. I know there's a lot of different ways of looking at it. There's payment, there's substitute, but I see a rescue mission. We find ourselves in a broken world and Christ comes in and kicks down the gates of hell, takes the keys, uh, makes an open mocking show of the powers of darkness and restores us. Uh, I I love the idea here that uh, the Lord comes and, and he rescues us from our prison, from our captivity, loosing us from the chains of bondage, the bondage of sin. And by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9 says, 
puts away sin once and for all. And now we are free to exercise options. You're still free to commit acts that that reflect an identity other than a child of God. You can take on whatever identity you want to. In a sense, you know, in this world, we can all be actors. We can pick an identity and run with that. And, you know, it may not necessarily be true from God's perspective, but you're good enough at it and you can fool everybody around you into agreeing with you. And we end up having to pretend with one another, agreeing with each other's false identity so we can have some sort of relationship with each other. And the reality is, is we've all got to come to this awareness of the truth of who we are is based upon the mind of God, the heart of God, who he says we are is who we are. Um, the creation has no power to look at its creator and say to its creator, you know, I'm not who you made me to be. Um, we can act like something else. We can even feel like something other than what we are. And say, so, really, is that true? Are my feelings lying to me? Absolutely. They lie to you all the time. Jesus himself set up a demonstration, the idea that sometimes we feel something that isn't necessarily truth. For example, on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was he forsaken by the father? Well, he was actually quoting Psalm 22, one says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? Far from the words of my groaning. Uh, and it sure sounds like he's been forsaken. Well, I'd say he feels forsaken, but in verse 24, Psalm 22, it says, you haven't forsaken me. The idea here is he says, when I cried out to you, you answered, you did not turn away from me. And so the reality is, is sometimes we feel forsaken, but if we'll hold on, we'll realize we're not. See, the promise of God is I'll never leave you or forsake you, but stick around this life long enough and you might actually feel forsaken of God. There might be circumstances that come into your life that make it feel like God is nowhere around. He's not present and he's forgotten, turned his back. And in that time, somehow the devil crept in and, and took advantage and brought pain and suffering into your life. No, you haven't been forsaken of God. He was with us in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death. That's somewhat discomforting for some people who say, wait a minute, if he's there, then why am I suffering? You know, God never promises us that we will not face suffering. He literally says, Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. But he goes on to say, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In other words, there's better beyond the bad. There's good beyond the darkness. There's light beyond uh, any any uh, dark uh, sense of hopelessness that you ever feel. You're going to find yourself walking with God through the middle of the valley of the shadow of death. And because you realize you're not alone and not forsaken, even in moments where you could latch on to fear, you don't have to partner with a spirit of fear. You don't come, have to come into agreement with evil. He says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. It's the revelation that he's with us, even in the moments of confusion and darkness that keep us from coming into partnership with evil or fear, which are manifest in our lives as sin. We identified sin in past podcasts as a medical issue, something from which we need to be healed. But the sickness of sin, which often causes people to do unspeakable things, even just simply to themselves or to other people, that is something we are never supposed to become accustomed to. 
I'm just saying this right now. Just you understand what I'm saying. We're never supposed to go, oh, just that, that's just the way life is. No, we recognize that there is still a need for the redeeming work of the cross to be enforced within the context of a world that still has the freedom of choice and poorly exercises or manages that freedom on a daily basis. Now, some people would say, well, why not just just accept things as they are? Because when we won't accept things as they are, then we suffer. And this is what a lot of Buddhist New Age teaching grabs a hold of. It's radical acceptance. Just go ahead and accept everything as it is. Because I would say to walk in a false identity that God didn't give you is offensive to God. To say to the creator, what you created in me is not who I am. I am going to make myself. Well, the Bible clearly states it is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And maybe that's one of the hard things that people have when it comes to accepting Christ. And that is the surrender factor to not just him being our savior to save us from our sins, but to him being Lord. And that is to surrender to the identity that he thought of from before the foundation of the world, to agree with that, not just simply that we are his sons and daughters, but that he has created us with grace, gifts, talents in our lives that are unique to who we are. And to discover the reality of the fullness of who we are, it's not we who make us. It is he who has formed us. There's treasure that he's placed within every single one of you. And in our surrender to let him bring that treasure out, he reveals to us who he has always known us to be. So when we operate in a false identity, it's not just offensive to God. Set that aside for a half a second. It's offensive to us. We live below what we were called to live in. We, we live in, in a lesser place than we were called to live in. It's like somebody who's been given royalty living in a gutter. We don't bless the gutter and bless their lifestyle. We recognize they're living lower, lesser than who they were actually created to be. They're manifesting in their own life a sense of a limitation of the love of God when in fact the love of God for us and the opportunities God has before us and the resources of heaven available to us are as limitless as God himself, which means we have not yet seen the fullness of the goodness that is meant to be shown forth in our lives. When we limit ourselves to an identity of our own making, we basically shut down the light of the world that's within us from showing forth in its radiant brilliance. We adopt a less than glorious identity and exalt our humanity. And so the glory of the Lord is obscured from this world. And the promise is the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord, where does that come forth? Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says it comes forth from the church. Church is not the building on the corner with the steeple. It's the body of Christ, disciples surrendered to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so in that surrender, we shine. We let the Lord's love shine through us in a way that doesn't puff up our own ego and pride. We can actually walk in radical love and radical humility all at the same time, simply 
by being exactly who God has made us to be. I want to leave you with this simple verse from Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not that the wages of sin means that the, the death is the punishment for sin, like you got a punishment for speeding, uh, and the punishment for speeding is a fine you have to pay. That's not what I'm talking about here. The wages of sin is death means this. Sin is death. And this is really important to understand. Wages are something you work for. You have to work for a false identity. It says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we surrender to be who we truly are, it's receiving a gift. It's as easy as receiving a gift. You can work to become something that you're not, or you can surrender to be who you truly are. The wages of sin is death. It's to embrace death. You work to embrace death. But when we surrender to have faith in the cross of Christ and what Jesus did and the power of his resurrection, we receive the gift of God in Christ, and that is eternal life. I pray that you receive that by faith today. Here on this broadcast, we just come to the end of our time, and I just want to say a, a prayer over you and just pray that God would bless you and keep you, that he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that he'd lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. You can write to us at Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. Listen again at Vanderbush Ministries or BillVanderbush.com. And uh, we love and, and appreciate each and every one of you for taking the time to be with us. I pray these broadcasts are life to you and health to your heart and that you take and shine the glory of God through the authentic you to this world. May they see Jesus Christ in you, in your words, in your love, in your action, in everything you do. May you put his glory on display. Grace and peace to you all. Thank you.